We're in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Some of you guys read ahead, and I already heard from a couple of you that said, wow, this passage is kind of a doozy, and, and you're right. So I tried to get David to shorten like the section he was doing last week so that he could, somebody else, so Chad could have this, but they didn't, they didn't go for that, so I got it. Uh, we're we're uh, basically at a point in the, in the chapter where Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this mission that, they're, uh, that he's sending them out on, and, and he's, he's pretty much told them, how to be prepared, and then what they can expect. And he just finished telling them that there are going to be those who will acknowledge him and those who will deny him. And so in, in verse 32, where David left off, it says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And one of the biggest reasons I think we all know why people reject Jesus is because they don't want to give up you know, their own lives, their, their desires that they have. They really don't want a Lord. Um, I've had conversations with people where I just point blank ask them, you don't want a Lord, do you? You don't want somebody that's a Lord over your life. And they say, no, I don't. I want to do my own thing. Um, that's more important to me, ultimately, than having Jesus. Another reason people deny him is because they know that there's going to be a cost involved. So if you align yourself with Jesus, it might cost you something, and, and some people have just determined that it's not worth it. And the ironic thing about this is that Jesus has every reason not to acknowledge us, not to align himself with us, and yet he does. He, he has every reason to ignore us. I mean, I think about me, you know, it's like, you know that guy? I could see Jesus going, I have no, I've never seen that guy before in my life. Pretend like he doesn't know who I am. That would be right because of the embarrassment and the shame that would come from aligning himself with somebody like me. And yet, he, not only does he acknowledge me before my father, but almost in a way like a proud dad, you know, like he, he's, he's pleased to acknowledge me before the father. That blows my mind. And it's also ironic to think about this, that everyone, when they stand before the father at the end, will be more than happy to have Jesus acknowledge them then. They'll say, oh, I wanna, I wanna be, you know, I'm with him. You know, let me, they'll wanna be his friend then, right? But if it's not important to you now, you know, it, that this is what, what kind of counts. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. I don't know if you guys have kind of seen this, but, but um, letting other people know that, that you belong to Jesus or, or that, you know, aligning yourself with them in some way really hasn't been extremely costly, um, you know, prior to, you know, to this, at least in our country. But all that's kind of changing rather rapidly today. I don't know if you're paying attention, but uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people are walking away from church, walking away from the faith. Some people are calling it deconstructing their faith. But ultimately, they, they've counted the cost, and, and they've determined that it's maybe not worth it. So as we'll discuss more this morning, some of this has to do with embarrassment over what the American church has become, and some of it has to do with being embarrassed to hold to and follow the teachings of God's Word. Both of those things are, are a struggle for some people. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, and, and like I said, it's kind of a hard passage, but in verse 34, Jesus is going to kind of talk about some of this stuff. And he starts out by saying, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves, loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. Now, Jesus starts out this passage by answering, I think, what would be an obvious question for the disciples at this point, as they've been wondering about this mission he's sending them on, and he's told them about the persecution that he's going to be, they're going to be facing. And I would think they would say, well, okay, now, if you're the promised Messiah, why aren't things going to go a little more smoothly for us when we go out on this mission? Why is it going to be hard? Because the assumption they had was that when Messiah come, he would establish his kingdom and he would bring peace on earth. That's, that's always been kind of the assumption of when, when Messiah comes. And that's definitely not what he's been describing to them at all. And I think some of us have had that same idea. Uh, sometimes when we, when we preach the gospel to people or we tell people about Jesus, we tell them, come to Jesus and, and your life will just be nothing but sunshine and roses all the time. You'll never have problems again. You know, you'll be wealthy. You'll be, I mean, that's, we, we sell people this kind of a, I would call it a bill of goods, which isn't true. It's not what the Bible tells us at all, but, but sometimes that's people's expectation. And then you have Jesus saying, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth, but I've come to bring a sword. It's like, what is he saying here? What is it? Sometimes he says stuff that's hard to understand or just sounds harsh. This is one of those things that it sounds pretty weird. I remember, I think it was Piper one time said, take whatever warm, fuzzy notions you have about Jesus and then read the Gospels and they'll go away. <laughs> it's like, it's not that bad, but it was kind of, you know, there, he says things sometimes that are, what in the world is that? Now, I want to just kind of make sure we, we understand what this isn't, because I think we've all known people in our lives that, that like to just stir things up. You know, they derive a great deal of enjoyment from walking into a room, seeing a beehive, whacking it with a stick, and then kind of stepping back and just watching the chaos ensue. Have you known people like that? We used to have a guy that used to come to our Bible studies for years, and he was one of those guys. He kind of drove me crazy, but it was also, you know, you, you kind of loved the guy, but man, it was hard. I remember one of the early stories I remember, this is even before I knew Pastor David, uh, David and Carrie started going to this church in Bend. They, they hadn't really been Christians for long. And this guy came up after the service, sat down next to David and said, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's like, what good is going to come from that? I mean, talk about just poking a bear for no good reason. It was just, that's the kind of guy he was. Jesus is not like that. Jesus isn't just stirring things up for his personal enjoyment. That's not what's going on here. So we have to kind of put this statement in the proper context or we'll, we'll miss the point entirely. And the, and the kind of weird thing is that we know from other passages that Jesus did come to bring peace. He's even called the Prince of Peace. So, so what is going on here? And, and I, would, I would say this refers, this peace that he's talking about, that he came to, to bring, is talking about a vertical peace, a peace between a sinful man, and a holy God. That's what Jesus came the first time to address, right? He came to kind of fix the hostility that exists in that relationship. He did not come to bring peace on earth his first time. But in, but in coming to bring vertical peace, what happens is he disrupts horizontal peace, earthly relationships. And you guys kind of, if you've been a Christian for long or if you have non-Christian friends or family, you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. That's what this passage is, is describing. His first coming inevitably brings strife because you're talking about putting people at odds with each other. But it's a necessary strife and it's a temporary strife. It's going to end at one point. At some point, you know, it has an end date with an eternal goal in mind. And so someday we will see peace the peace that we crave so much, the peace that we desire so much, someday we will actually experience that kind of peace. There's going to come a point when all hostility will cease. I don't know if you ever think about what that will be like, but it's an amazing thing to consider. 
Think about all the stuff that's going on in our world today, all the things that everybody seems to, to be at odds. I mean, there's racial tensions, there's, there's cultural things, there's political things, there's gender things, there's all kinds of ideologies that everybody seems to just be at odds with each other and upset with each other and mad at each other. And one day, all of that will be over and done with when, when Jesus establishes his heavenly kingdom. All of it will be fixed and true peace will reign because Jesus will reign. So those who experience vertical peace with God now will one day experience what he's always promised, this life that he always intended for us where we get to include horizontal peace with everything and everyone. But not everyone is going to receive Jesus. So not everyone's going to have this peace. Not everybody's going to experience this. If they reject Jesus now and they reject his sacrifice for them on the cross, they, they will only know the opposite of this forever. So humanity is divided. And it's based on what they do with Jesus now, right now. And that's what he's talking about when he says he came to bring a sword instead of peace. The sword he's speaking about here is referring to that choice that they do. What do they do with Jesus? Not judgment. A day of judgment's coming. Don't misunderstand. Someday you might be judged for that choice. But right now, that's what it's referring to. What do we do with Jesus? And we've all seen how polarizing this can be. Some of it even came up in our sharing time this morning. Jesus uses the example of families in this passage because that's the closest knit fabric we have. We know that more than anything else. And these are the, the relationships that we probably care the most about. How, you know, how, how is my relationship with my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, all those things, those things matter a lot. And it's interesting because these are the, the, the relationships that we want approval from. If you think about a dad wanting to or a son wanting approval from his dad, I want my dad to be proud of me. I want him to accept me. A daughter with her mother. And then he uses the example of a daughter-in-law with her mother-in-law. And you can imagine that. If you're coming into this family, whose approval do you, do you need if you're going to function and survive? You need mother-in-laws, right? These are those, those relationships that we really want to make sure we get right because they're going to change our lives. So verse 35, he says this. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about when he says this, doesn't he? Because what was Jesus' family like? They didn't accept him, right? He, the enemy, his enemies were people in his own household. He knows how hard it is to have a, you know, a line like this drawn between you and your family. And, and some of us have experienced this too. We know this division and how, you know, how it manifests itself. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and you've got family members who don't, it shows up in a variety of ways. Your core beliefs are different. The way you raise your kids are different. The things you allow and don't allow are different. The movies you watch are different. On and on it goes. The places you go and so forth. And then there's, there's the big subjects that, we, that, we, you know, that come to a head. Things like you know, alcohol and drugs and things like homosexuality and abortion and gender and critical race theory and gun control and politics and immigration and racial equality and all these things. I mean, this is why, what's the number one rule that families don't talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Religion and politics. This is why it's a rule because these things cause us to want to, you know, get at each other's throats. These things can rip a family apart They cause major friction. Family's supposed to be all about love and acceptance. That's what, that's, but it's supposed to be a safe place. But these things will create all kinds of problems. They'll create resentment. They'll make somebody feel judged, condemned, inferior, unaccepted. And, and that's, that's really kind of what Jesus is talking about. 
I remember my family having a very hard time when I became a Christian. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what it meant. And I know many of you have experienced the same thing. Um, I hear stories about people being cut off from their families because of their devotion to Christ. Now, I've never experienced anything like that. They didn't understand me, but they never, you know, stopped loving me or stopped accepting me. I, I didn't have to go through that. But back in verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus describes how bad it can get. He paints a, a rather extreme picture of it. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for my name's sake. You know, there have been many Christians who have gone through this very type of thing. And there are many Christians today in the world who are still going through this. To say that you're a Christian means that your life is in danger. It means that your family will maybe want nothing to do with you. And we're not talking about not getting invited to Thanksgiving dinner. We're talking about you're dead to us. No more support, no more love, no inheritance, nothing. You're, you're gone. That's, that's a normal thing for many Christians today in our world. Your own flesh and blood wishing you were dead. I mean, think about that. That's extreme. But this is the sword that he's talking about. And I want you to think about, if you can imagine being in that spot, imagine the pressure that puts upon yourself. The pressure that you don't want to lose family. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to be without those people. So it makes you really consider the cost of following Jesus. And for the first time ever, I think, in our country, this is starting to become a real thing to think about. It's a real possibility. Because as people start to look for answers as to why there's so much division, why things are falling apart in our country, they're going to look to see who, who is it that's rocking the boat? Who, who is it that's, that's not willing to comply? Where is this opposition coming from? And when they identify Christians as, as the reason or the problem, well, guess where they're going to point their aggression? <laughs> it's going to get pointed at us. And we are really going to be the odd, the odd ones out in this, in this scenario. You know, the, the weirder things get in the world and the more we stick to the Word of God, this is the reality that we can start to expect. And when this happens, the question that everyone has to answer is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? Or will I deny him before men so that I can keep the peace or maybe save my own skin? Right? This is exactly what he's getting at in verse 37 where he says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And by the way, I just want to point out something here. If, if Jesus isn't God, this is a messed up thing to say. <laughs> okay? Think about a, any human being saying this. If you love your parents more than me, you're not worthy of me. It's like, who do you think you are? My parents? Jesus is God. That's why you can say something like this. If he wasn't, this would be a terrible statement to make. But he is God, and so it's absolutely the right thing to say. And the funny thing is, even though that kind of rubs us the wrong way, you know, you think about that, really, I'm supposed to love him more? We even have sayings like this, right? What about God, family, country? I see this on hats and shirts and stuff all the time. We even say we agree with this in principle, but when the rubber meets the road, are we really going to choose God over family? Are we really going to make him the priority and put him at the top of the list? Obviously, Jesus is not saying by, by this statement that, that he doesn't want us to love our family or honor our parents. That's everywhere in Scripture. We know that that's important to him. We're supposed to love our family. We're supposed to care for them. We're supposed to honor parents. 
He's making us answer the question, who is at the top of your list? That's the question. When it comes down to a choice between having them or having Jesus, what will you choose? Will you deny Jesus or will you deny family and friends? What's more important to you? And then this is a hard thing. I remember when I became a Christian, uh, I was 19 years old, and I had some really good friends at that time who did not become Christians along with me. And I would still go and hang out with them, uh, try to be friends with them. And I remember just at one point I had to have a hard conversation with them and say, guys, I'm a Christian now. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm doing different things than you guys are doing. When I'm around you, you try to pull me back into that old way of life, and, and that's not me anymore. And so I had to lovingly tell them, I still love you, you're still my friends, but I can't, I can't be in this kind of a relationship anymore. I'll still be there for you, I'll still be kind to you, I'll still, you know, we'll keep in touch. It wasn't like I was, you're dead to me kind of thing, but I just had to tell them, I have to draw a line here. And it was a hard thing to do. But the really cool thing, and it doesn't always work out this way, but in a couple of weeks from, from that time when I did that, they called me and said, we wanna know more about this Jesus. We want to know more about this relationship you have. And they both prayed to receive Christ. And one of them, to this day, we still, we still email back and forth. We still share verses. We used to do the good news of the day. We'd stick it on each other's cars. But, you know, he's in Idaho and I'm here, but we're still friends and he's still following Christ. Now, I, I, wish to, you know, I wish I could say it works out that way every time, but I never regretted drawing that line. I needed to. It was important. Now, of course, friends and family represent those that we love the most in this world, but there's more to consider than just those relationships. There, there, there's, you know, we have the relationship with people, but we also have a relationship with stuff. And that's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Because this includes things like other things we need to prioritize or die to perhaps. And that would be things like money, comfort, jobs, success, any attachment that you have in the world that you're trying to hold tight to that you don't want to let go of that's what he's talking about here and I remember going through this as well when I was again the, the night before I became a Christian I was this close but I remember going into my garage that night and the door was kind of open and it was standing in the dark and I my parents were inside their house and I just kind of prayed in the garage and I remember bargaining with Jesus it was this moment of like okay I want Jesus and I want what he has to offer but there's all these attachments of the world that I want too so let's let's see if we can just kind of bargain a bit here. How about if I do like, uh, let's do like a 30-70 split. What if I were just to, to hold on to these things and then, you know, give you 70% of me? You know, that, that was kind of what I tried doing that night. And I remember at some point I just started weeping and I knew that wasn't going to work, but I was still wanting to hold on to these things. And I think you've all kind of been in that spot where it's like, are, am I all in or, or am I not all in? And this is so important because, we, you know, again, what is Jesus worth compared to those things? It's something everybody has to ask. Am I willing to die to those things in order to gain Jesus? Is that more important? And the way you answer this matters so much because this is, this is eternity we're talking about. The, an, the way you answer that determines eternity. And I want to be clear here because I, I, I don't, I get, sometimes when you're preaching, you, you can confuse people. And I'm not talking about Every once in a while, I'll have a day where the things of the world appeal to me or a person in the world becomes more, more important to me than maybe I get it out of, out, of, out of whack, right? I'm not talking about those kinds of slip-ups or those kinds of things. We all struggle with that. This is a big scheme, you know, big idea kind of thing. It, it, when I just weigh it all out, am I all in or am I not all in? 
You know, am I, when you're faced with a choice of having Jesus or having the world, which one do you want more? Which one will you deny? Which one will you die to? And this is what's meant by taking up your cross. You know, the cross was a symbol of death. Now we have little people, little people, not little people, little, little necklaces and things like that where we're, all, we're displaying the cross. And, you know, it's become almost like a piece of jewelry now. But, but it's an instrument of death. It's a symbol of death. Taking up your cross is a picture of giving up your life to gain Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and there's a famous quote in it where he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We have shirts that say that here at the door. You can buy them. Come and die. That sounds kind of bleak, doesn't it? It's like, hey, come and die. Well, who wants to do that? Well, admittedly, sounds bad until you realize what you gain. You're gaining something when you do this, and that's what Jesus talks about in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This seems counterintuitive because most people spend so much time and effort and money trying to find themselves. You know, countless dollars spent on, you know, books and journeys and gurus and therapists and whatever else they can try to find to try to find their life and find this meaning, and they come up short. Jesus is saying, give your life to me and you'll find what you're looking for. And he's absolutely right. It's true. You know, I mean, Jesus said, I am the life. He, he meant it. He is the life. He's the bread that will satisfy our hunger. He's the, the drink, the water that will quench our thirst. Everything else will leave us hungry and parched because God made it that way. I mean, think about it. God is our creator. Is he going to create something that, that we can find satisfaction in apart from him? No, of course not. He's the answer. He's the one we're looking for. He's the one who will complete us. But it doesn't stop us from trying to find something else, right? We're, we're kind of stubborn that way. Well, maybe there's something else out there we're missing, so we, we give it a shot. At some point, you get to the end of that, and you realize there's nothing. I, 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 there's nothing, nothing here except for him. Jared Wilson, a good quote I saw this week, he said, for many of us, Jesus won't be our absolute treasure until we're out of all other options. And, and that was true for me. I tried everything I could think of, and finally I came to the end of it and th- thought, none of this is worth it. And then I found Christ, and the trade-off was easy. When we understand that true life comes through Christ, we will gladly take up our cross. We'll be able to sing that song. You know, we sing a song called The Wonderful Cross, and the lyrics are, you know, The, the Wonderful Cross bids me come and die that I might truly live. And that's exactly what I experienced. So now, without question, I'm willing to take up my cross. I'm willing to die for my faith. I'm willing to suffer humiliation and loss and persecution. You know, those are all things that a cross carrier has to face. But those are the exact things that Jesus faced for us so that we could have life. So I can say without any hesitation, I've weighed it out and Jesus is worth it. I want him more than anything else. And one of the amazing things I've discovered, and and this is kind of hard to explain, but the things of the world, the things that I left behind, the things that I said I'll die to, somehow when you, become, when you come to Christ and you experience new life, those things get redeemed. Those things that now I can have a, a healthy relationship with those where before they led to sin and death, and now somehow, and I'm not talking about sinful or evil things, but something like a job. You know, I poured my whole life into a job and I was a workaholic, not me, but <laughs> there's people out there, I didn't care about work. But you know, you, you think this is where I'll find my satisfaction. This is where I'll find my identity. And, and so you, you forsake everything else for this job and for the success. 
and that becomes death, right? It's an idol. It's an object of worship. But then when you come to Christ and he's your object of worship, all of a sudden work becomes a, a, a thing that's glorious. It's wonderful. I can enjoy it to the glory of God. Food can be this way. Sex can be this way. So many things can be this way. Those relationships can be redeemed in Christ to where, I don't know, it's like you can enjoy them to the glory of God. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, we all know this real division exists. Jesus is on one side of it. People who have rejected him are on the other side of it. And, and, you know, we get that. But what do we do with people that are on the other side of that line or people that we're not sure of where they stand. Because this is kind of the reality of where we live as people right now. How do we relate to them? Um, how do we navigate this reality, especially within our families? I have a family member that I was talking to recently. Uh, she's not a Christian. Uh, I wish she was. I, I've you know, raised that person to, to love the Lord and to be a Christian, but it, it, right now she's not. And um, we talked one day about this invisible wall that's just existing between us. You know, let's just call it out. I just said, do you feel that? Do you, do, you, do you recognize that it's there? What does that do to us? And she said, I feel it. It's there. I know you love me. Um, I know you are proud of me. I know that you do anything for me. But at the end of the day, we're standing on two sides of that wall. And you can't ignore it. It's like an elephant in the room that's always there. What do you do with that? Do you just pretend it's not there? And just, you know, you can't. And that's what Jesus is saying. I, I brought this sword that you can't ignore this. And, and she knows, even though I love her, she knows what I believe. She knows that I believe that if she doesn't receive Christ as her Lord and Savior, that she will perish eternally. She knows I believe that. That makes it pretty awkward, right? Of course, that's going to be weird. But it's the reality. I can't pretend it's not there. You know, it's not going to be possible to just... You know, you have to pick a side at some point, and, and, and you, you have to do it in a gracious way, in a loving way, in a compassionate way, but, it, but it's important that they understand that. So this is what I, I guess I want, the big, one of the big ideas I want you to get is division. When we think about Jesus with a sword, it sounds horrible, but we need to understand that this division is actually a kindness from God. Do, do, you, do you see this? It's a kindness from God. It's important that we understand where people are. I need to know where I stand. She needs to know where she stands. You need to know where you stand. And what Jesus has done here is he's helped make that clear. I'm extremely grateful that God was kind enough to let me know at one point in my life where I actually stood. Because I thought I was just fine. I thought God's a loving God. I don't kill people, uh, you know. So I'm good. That was a Roman Catholic kind of a thing. That sounds bad. But I remember thinking, I don't do anything too bad. Not killing people's extreme. But I thought, well, as long as I don't do any of the really big sins, I'm good. And at some point, God in his kindness said, Brent, you're on the other side of this line. And that was a terrifying thing to realize. But thank God he showed me that. Thank God that there was a line to see that I could understand. You know, we've been, we've been living for a long time in a country that's made it hard to recognize who's who. Hard for them and hard for us. I don't know if you realize this, but I remember growing up, everybody was a Christian. You know, if you believed that there was a God in heaven or something like that, you were a Christian. We're all family. We're all brothers and sisters. That's the way it was. There were polls that were taken where people would say that the American nation is 80% Christian, over 80% at one point. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's not right. We know that, but that's what the stats were. I, I, the number has dropped. It's dropping, it's kind of like, you know, 
it's starting to really drop now because a cost is coming. There wasn't one before. But that number was never accurate. And I think most Christians knew it was never accurate. To me, there was probably 70% of the people who were confused about what side of the line they were really on and what it really meant to be a follower of Christ. And that might sound cynical, but one out of 10 people I meet, well, not, not church-wise, but you, know, you don't meet a lot of people that are truly Christians, I think. So one of the good things I've learned over the years, it's good to recognize that there is a division. It's good to recognize where people are truly standing because I often assume people are Christians, mostly because I want to. You, you want so much for somebody to, to be a Christian that you just kind of almost fake it, that, you know, maybe, maybe they are. You know, I sneezed and they said, God bless you, so I think they might be a Christian. It's like, oh, wait a second. You know, we, we do that, right? But what happens when we do this, when we kind of project what we want onto people, instead of being honest about where they stand, is we reinforce that false belief in them that they're fine. Well, that's not good, right? Or we get frustrated when there's a lack of fruit in their life or a lack of you know, conviction or brokenness over their sin. I don't know if you've been in that spot, but you're thinking, well, this person says they're a Christian, but they don't seem to care about any of the stuff that I care about. We need to kind of be honest about, you know, again, if you're saying, why aren't you acting like a Christian? The answer might be, maybe they're not. Maybe they're actually not born again. Again, this isn't our, we're not trying to decide who is and who's in and who's out. That's not our job. But maybe we should try to see where that line is and where they stand because it'll be helpful. It'll change the way we talk to them. It'll change the way we pray for them. You know, I, I tend to have more, this sounds bad, but I tend to have more grace, compassion, and understanding for a non-Christian than I do a Christian uh, because, you know, I expect more from a spirit-filled believer than I do a person who's dead in their sins and trespasses, as the Bible calls it. So it changes the way we relate to them if we're being honest about that. That's why, again, this, this, line, this line of division is a kindness from God. Now, we continue to hope. We continue to love. We continue to all of these things, but we, we, we kind of stop expecting them maybe to behave as a Christian, that type of thing, um, because now we understand which line, side of the line they're on. So the division is a kindness from God, and, 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 but in this same thing, we see that the sword is necessary, right? It's good that he brought the sword for this reason, but we also need to understand that love is necessary. If you have the sword without the love, you've got a problem. And, and this is the part that I think many Christians get wrong. I see two big errors or two big extremes um, in, in Christians today when it comes to the idea of Jesus bringing a sword. We have one group that gets way too excited about it, and we have one group that gets way too uncomfortable with it, okay? One group is all about truth, but lacks love, and one group is all about love, but lacks truth. Both are a problem. Now, the group that gets uncomfortable, they just don't like division. They don't, they don't like the idea of thinking of Jesus in that way, you know? Ah, put the sword away. Let's not, let's not talk about that. Let's not think of him like that. They, they kind of suffer from what I would call can't-we-all-just-get-along syndrome, you know, some of you guys know exactly what that's like. You don't like to ever stir things up or get things going. The problem is that you want unity at all costs, but unity without truth is very shallow, and it ignores the big problem, the big elephant in the room of sin and the consequences of sin and the destination of sin that, that's unforgiven. So this kind of unity forces people to make compromises. It forces you to kind of go along with what I would call the the morality of the majority, okay? And we're seeing this happen. We're seeing a lot of Christians do this right now. They're just saying, well, this is what the majority thinks morality is, so let's go with that. 
Dan Doriani in his commentary on Matthew points out the problem with this kind of thinking. I thought it was excellent. Have you noticed that morality, what's right and what's wrong, changes rapidly? It's like a roller coaster. I mean, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you get dizzy trying to keep up with it. It changes really fast. And this is the point he made. Do you remember not, th- not that long ago, a time in our country where everybody agreed upon this, public smoking was viewed as a lifestyle choice, right? Homosexuality was viewed as an abomination. This was just the way it was. I grew up in, that, in this country when it was that way. What's happened now? They've traded places. Smoking is now an abomination, an abomination, one of the worst things you can do. And homosexuality is a lifestyle choice. And I'm not trying to make a commentary on either of those things. I'm just pointing out how things can change. There are a dozen more examples just like this, where if you just let the, the majority decide what morality is, it, it's a crapshoot. You have no idea what it's going to be now, next week, a week from then. It's going to change constantly. If that's your standard for morality, you need a better standard, right? Fortunately, we have one. Hey, look at that, right? God has given us his word as a standard that doesn't change. may not be popular, but it doesn't change with the times. It was true yesterday. It's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. So we have a standard. The problem that, that we see is that people are forced to go along with the majority or they'll get ostracized. They'll get persecuted. They'll get mocked, that kind of thing. And for some people, going back to what we talked about before, that's more important to them than pleasing Jesus. And so again, we have to, we have to make a, a decision. But I would just say that if God calls something wrong, we can accept it as that. We, we can accept it without apology. Now we can present it to people in a way that's nice and gracious and loving and kind. Be respectful, but go along with what God said, right? That's, that's the way it is. And, and when we do that, we should be prepared for it to cause division, okay? It will. We'll, we're going to be told things like, you're narrow-minded and you're bigoted. We're going to be told that we're on the wrong side of history. We're going to be told that we follow an antiquated book that's run its course that we should leave behind. We're going to be told all those things. That's okay. Some of that is just simply a result of following Jesus, and we need to be prepared for it. But some of it, if we're being honest, some of the persecution and the, 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 the harm that we get, we bring upon ourselves. And that brings us to the second group that I mentioned. These are the people that are way too excited about the idea of the sword. Jesus brought a sword. This is great. Yes. They're finally going to get what's coming to them. Let them have it, Jesus. You know, you just want to see the sword go. To, this is, there's people like this that they, they basically, they want judgment to come on those who deserve it. They want to call down fire on people, like, like the, you know, James and John were this way. Like, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on people? I'm glad God didn't give me the ability to call down fire on people. I don't think I would do it well. But, but the idea is that we're, these people are standing here saying, we're the moral ones. We're the ones that are on the high ground here. And they make divisions between the righteous and the unrighteous and the goodies and the baddies. The problem is they're conveniently forgetting about a really important detail. The difference between us and them, we're forgiven sinners they're unforgiven sinners, right? You don't have any righteousness of your own. Jesus gave you his. The righteousness that you have, if you have any, was credited to you, <laughs> okay? You don't have any moral high ground. You don't have a high horse to look down at others from. Jesus is the righteous one. 
We're the reason he was nailed to a cross. We can't forget that. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a passage in Titus that talks about this big, long list of the worst sins possible. And you're looking at that going, oh, gross, yuck. Oh, those people are the worst. And then it says, but such were some of you. And that's when it all comes crashing back down on me. Do I, I remember, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember who I am now. And I remember who he is now. And I remember what he's done for me now. We can't lose sight of that. Knowing that apart from God's kindness, you would be in the same boat as those people you want to call down fire from heaven upon should cause some humility and some compassion for those who are still in that boat, right? We were once in that boat, so, so it needs to change that. So the sword is necessary, but love is also necessary. We can't avoid the division and the offense that comes from preaching the gospel. We're called to preach a gospel that is offensive to people because you're saying you're on that side of the line and, and I'm on this side of the line. That's offensive. But we don't need to add to the offense, okay? Jesus brought a sword, and we're over here going, hey, do you want, do you want, I have a dagger. I've got some throwing stars. Do you want to use those too? Let, let the sword be enough, okay? The cross creates this, this, this wall that I was talking about, this invisible wall. It's there. There's a barrier between us and between those who don't believe, but we do not need to add more obstacles, no more bare message. But how can we make it as attractive as possible? And the answer is, by having Christ-like conduct, right? So, so when Jesus talked to his disciples in John 13, he said, all men will know that you are my disciples by, way, by the way you own them through your social media arguments, you know, by your intellect and your, stel- you know, what did he say? You, they will know you're my disciples by your love. And, and, and it's an amazing thing when people see that. And that's one of the things I love about this church. I see so much love you know, that you have for each other and the way you care for each other and so much love for the, the way, you know, you care for the outside world. That's a strong testimony that Jesus is alive, that he's real, and he's in our midst. That's way more important than, than a lot of the stuff we get involved in. So they'll know that we are Christians by our love. When your family members who currently are rejecting Jesus watch your conduct, what do they see? I want you to think about that. I know you love, you're probably just like me, I have several family members that I love and I want to see come to Christ. What do they see when they watch me? Do they see somebody who's always angry and complaining and whining about everything that's going on around them? Or do they see somebody who's full of joy, full of peace, full of life because they're full of Christ? Do they see somebody who is selfless, who takes up their cross daily and dies to self and lives for Christ and for others? Do they see someone who believe so strongly that Jesus is the Christ that they've forsaken everything else for that, for that one that can save them. And they know your faith is real. They know for 100% your faith is real. Our message becomes so much more valuable when that's the case. So when people around us, they, they see the world going to heck in a handbasket, I think I can say that. Uh, the economy's crumbling, society's out of hand, everybody's at odds with each other, everybody hates each other, and they see us just walking around, you know, <laughs> happy, full of hope, full of joy. They're going to go, what's going on? And we'll be able to say, my God is on his throne. He loves me. He's accepted me. He's given his son for me. His plan and his purpose is being accomplished. My future in heaven is secure because Jesus lives. That's a powerful testimony. And we have that. What do I have to be grumpy about? Nothing, really. I mean, I still am grumpy, but nothing is the answer. So I would just say, beloved, the the line 
of division is, is getting wider. It's getting more obvious. And, and it can be discouraging sometimes to see the way things are going in our world and in our country and what's taking place. But, but I just want you to remind you of a truth that I read this week, and it just blessed me to read it. Because you can get so disillusioned when you start to see things kind of going wrong. And this is what this guy said, speaking about the early church. His name is Dr. Derwin L. Gray. I don't know who he is, but I love this quote. He said, The early church, a mixture of Jews, Gentiles, had no political power. Rome ruled. There was no Christian Supreme Court. They had no cultural power. They were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. They had no economic power. But they had love, and they had the power of Jesus. And I don't know if you remember what the early church did, but they had none of that stuff going for them, and they turned the stinking world upside down. You know, are things bleak in our country? Yeah. But they're not bleak in in our country, right? God is doing something, and we get to be a part of that. And I hope you guys are excited about it. I see that you are, and I love it, and I'm excited about it too. What What a great thing to be a part of. Okay, I didn't forget communion. I forgot before I got here, so I didn't write anything in there, but um, communion is a table that is set for believers. It's, it's, we're told to do this in remembrance of him. Jesus bore the cross for us so that we could have life. He willingly gave himself as a substitute. It should have been you on the cross. It should have been me on the cross. It should have been my body broken and my blood shed, but he said, I will stand in and I will be that sacrifice for you so that you can have life. We're supposed to remember this. This is the gospel presented for us. This is Christ for you. It's the greatest meal that we get until we get there. So let's enjoy it as we worship him now. And uh, I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for, for your holy word. Uh, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for what he went through for sinners like us. Lord, we have the words of life. And we pray that uh, we would be bold with those words. We know the time could be very short. We don't know. But Lord, we pray that we would have a, an urgency within us to let other people know that Jesus lives, that uh, he is the answer that they've been looking for, and that you've gone to great lengths to, to, to want to basically make a relationship possible with those who are perishing. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.